Hey there. Welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker, the show where we talk about the Republican Party's attempt to pass some sort of health care legislation. I'm Jordan Weissman, Slate's economics correspondent. And I'm Jim Newell, Slate's Capitol Hill reporter. It looks like there's going to be a new bill and we're going to talk about it. Everybody hated the first Senate bill. I think that's like that. That's pretty much consensus now. Nobody liked it. And Mitch McConnell has sort of patched together a a second draft. Jim, what's going to be in this thing? And is anybody going to like it this time around? It's not going to be that different. And I'm not sure who's going to like this more. It looks like even though they're going to try to frame this as a whole new bill that's completely better than that last piece of garbage that no one likes, it's pretty much going to be quite similar. The Medicaid portion of the bill, which is the you know, biggest part of the bill affects most people is going to say pretty much the same. There's going to be uh, an extra $45 billion for opioid abuse funding. There's going to be some expanded health savings accounts. There's going to be potentially the amendment by Ted Cruz and Mike Lee that would allow people to sell non-ACA compliant plans. And that's about it. They're going to keep two of the Obamacare taxes in the bill, the net investment tax and the Medicare surcharge, which is going to leave them with a lot more money that they're probably going to put into reinsurance or stabilization money to help keep premiums down. The changes to Medicaid are going to stay absolutely the same, that they're still going to cap it. They're still going to lower its growth rate. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars cut from this program that helps the elderly, disabled, poor children. <laughs> like, this is the big fear of moderates. This is the, the sticking point for Dean Heller. It looks like Rob Portman in Ohio is even more concerned about it than he was before. And the fact that they're doing nothing on it, I mean, what does that, what kind of signal does that send? Is it is it that the moderates are capitulating, in your opinion, or that it's just that Mitch McConnell isn't even trying at this point to win them over. The only senator who seemed to make this really conditional that you keep that slower long-term growth rate was Pat Toomey, who is sort of his, his baby in this bill. The people it's scaring away, you mentioned Heller and Portman, Shelley Moore Capito. This is her main thing. Lisa Murkowski is not happy about it. I mean, I, I don't really know how you can twist their arms anymore after this. If you look at the changes that are made, well, first we have to see if the Cruz and Lee provision gets in there. They're sort of waiting to see CBO score the effects of that, and the effects of that will probably be not very good. Susan Collins still wants a complete overhaul, she said. I think she's gone. Rand Paul wrote an op-ed on Breitbart today that was calling the bill a shame for expanding Obamacare. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) I mean, Rand Paul is, is, you know, there's some question about is Rand Paul just bluffing, trying to exert his leverage. I think Rand Paul does not like this bill and is not going to vote for this bill. Then you have all the, you know, sort of second tier no's. You have uh, Jerry Moran from Kansas, who shocked a lot of people when he came out against it. You have John Hoven from North Dakota. I don't think he's happy with it. I mean, who knows? John McCain? I don't, I like, it it still seems like it's stuck at 35 votes. There's so much to talk about here. So the Moran thing is interesting to me. So so Jerry Moran is a a good kind of uh, rank and file Republican from Kansas who was supposed to be a sort of guy who would just go along with leadership on this. And instead, he went home, talked to his constituents, had a town hall. And at that town hall, everyone basically just railed on this bill. And he seemed to come away from it just deciding it wasn't worth it. That All of a sudden, he had all these concerns. And it almost seemed like he was really the canary in the coal mine, or at least so far. I mean, am I, am I reading that right? 
there's probably a lot of senators still flying under the radar who have a lot of problems. If you're a state that has a lot of rural hospitals, this bill is not good for you. <laughs> so yeah. why would you go along with it? I mean, even if you are a, a usually reliable vote. I don't know what their presentation is going to be like tomorrow when they come out and they're like, well, this is the bill. I mean, you, you would really have to have buy-in from all these no senators to say, you know, oh, this is completely different, so now it's fine. They would sort of have to all be in on this kabuki where they pretend it's completely different, but they're not. So, For a long time, the cliche was that all politics is local, right? And then over the last you know, decade or so, there, or maybe two decades, there's been this trend away from that, where suddenly all politics is becoming national and ideological, and the parties are splitting into two very distinct conservative and liberal camps. All local elections even were about what was happening on the national level, these contests between liberalism and, or progressivism and conservatism. And what we're seeing in the negotiations over this health care bill, I feel like, is actually kind of the resurgence of local politics. That all of a sudden, you're seeing people yeah. from Kansas who look at these Medicaid cuts and say, wait, this is going to hurt my constituents and I am going to lose an election over it. You know, in West Virginia, you're seeing Shelley Moore Capito saying, you know, one third of my state relies on this program or you know, no, no, one third of hundreds of thousands of people that all of a sudden local politics are having a resurgence here. And, and that's fascinating that maybe, you know, all politics isn't national anymore or all politics didn't become national. Or, and, you know, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with this bill. Maybe it will pass. But it seems like sort of that's that that's the big force at play. Yeah, well, I think there's these two sort of countervailing pressures between local interests and national pressure and, you know, ideological pressure. And I mean, part of the big story of this and why this bill is flailing is that you don't really have any conservative grassroots energy activism pressing them to pass this. I mean, it's not a big thing on right-wing talk radio. They don't care about it because they know it's a garbage bill. You don't have lots of outside groups rallying behind this. You don't have Tea Party groups. They're not happy with this bill. They don't think it's Obamacare repeal. You don't have that national political energy from the conservative side to pass this bill, so the local factors are taking over. It's a bill that's designed for no one to like <laughs> it. So I think that's a really key point here. You know, theoretically, conservative health care reform would have been driven by some sort of conservative ideas. You know, aside from kind of Ovik Roy, most conservative health experts have sort of, you know, abandoned this bill. They're not happy with it. They don't think it does enough to allow the market to bring down the cost of health care. When you say it's a garbage bill, in this case, I mean, I think our listeners know we both kind of come from the left on this, but conservatives, like actual conservative intellectuals, think of this as sort of a garbage bill. It's sort of this weird chimera the prevailing opinion. I mean, it's a bill with a 12 to 20 percent popularity rating. I, I think that, you know, makes it pretty close to being an objectively garbage bill. So I want to talk about the, the Cruz Amendment a little bit, because this is supposed to be the one thing that could get conservatives on board. And we, we've discussed the Cruz Amendment before, but just to review, it's this provision that would allow health insurers to sell pretty much any kind of plan they wanted off of the Obamacare exchanges as long as they sold one Obamacare compliant plan. So you just sell the one, you know, equivalent of a bronze plan that, you know, someone can go and get subsidies for and, you know, that it has all the minimum coverage requirements and can't discriminate against the sick. And then you can sell anything else you want. And the problem with this that a lot of people have seized on and that we talked about a little bit is that 
if you allow insurers to sell those cheapo plans and healthy people are going to go and buy those, and then the Obamacare compliant plans are going to become incredibly expensive because they're only going to serve the sick and the old and the people who need that kind of coverage. And so it seems like at this point, this may or may not end up in the legislation. They've submitted it to the CBO. But it seems like it's not clear that Mitch McConnell's actually wants it. I mean, what is the state of play? He's sending mixed signals about whether or not he actually wants to offer up the one thing that could supposedly win over the conservative faction. Well, I I think Mitch McConnell is fine with it personally. I think it's just a vote counting issue. He knows he has to do this or something like it to get Cruz, Lee, probably Johnson on boards, which are votes he absolutely needs. So they're scoring it and they're going to see the effects. I wrote a, a piece yesterday. They're looking at ways to sort of water it down a little bit to not scare off moderates. There's this one idea that Senator Mike Grounds from South Dakota is looking at where you would have to create a ratio between the most expensive and the cheapest plans to sort of link them together, prevent the ACA compliant plans from just sort of spiraling out of control. So that's something they're looking at now to maybe defang this a little bit, but that. You know, that'd be really tricky if you're trying to link highly regulated plans to this sort of <laughs> jello scam stuff that, you know, could could uh, come out of the Cruise Amendment. Yeah, it just also makes it plans. so complicated. They still also have to, you know, go through the parliamentarian. I think that they're making that case today. So, it, it, I mean, it's still a question of whether this can even be included in the bill under reconciliation. Waiting in the background of all this is the fact that we don't know what parts of this deal actually can make it into the final bill. We don't know what will work under the Senate's reconciliation rules because they're going so far into the bleeding edge of what's been tried before. And so no matter how painstakingly they try to craft some sort of bargain, it's just totally unclear whether that's going to survive the Senate's procedural rules, which at least up to this point, it still looks like McConnell is intent on uh, abiding by, right? Yeah, I I don't think they're probably going to overrule the parliamentarian unless they know it's the only key to getting the number of votes they need. I think I think it would be probably easier for McConnell and the leadership if the parliamentarian gave an unequivocal no that this is not allowed. And then, you you know, you would have to work cruisingly on in other areas. This couldn't be their demand anymore. We'll see. We'll find that out pretty soon. So there's this one other subplot going on right now, where you have a few Republicans like Lindsey Graham talking about a bipartisan compromise to stabilize the markets. Somehow they're going to work with Democrats to just fix Obamacare. Does anybody have any idea what guys like Graham have in mind right now, That what that compromise might be? I mean, I have my own personal like fantasy compromise where the Republicans just cut some taxes and Democrats just spend some money to fix Obamacare and everyone leaves happy where no one actually tries to save any money. What are these, you know, moderate Republicans thinking? This sort of came out of nowhere when Lindsey Graham yesterday was like, I'm talking Democratic senators. I'm working on a bill. We're going to have something in 24 to 48 hours. (laughs) So, okay, Uh, Didn't know about that. Aren't you still supposed to be trying to save your current bill? But um, there are two options for a plan B if you want to do something after health care, if you're a Republican. You could do what the conservatives want, which is go back to just doing a clean repeal and delay process where you repeal it and replace later. That has 0% chance of happening because that probably has 15 votes yeah. in the Senate Republican conference. The other idea is looking at a bipartisan situation, which, you know, I don't know, maybe they would try to be ambitious and put in some reforms, but those reforms would probably get tricky and scare away some people. So, yeah, I, I think if they do do something, it probably whittles down to 
yeah, just throwing money around, you know, throwing money at insurers pretty much. Or, yeah, and then giving Republicans some sort of tax cut. I, I can sort of see a compromise where really the insurance industry makes out like bandits here. Democrats getting oh, yeah. a bigger stability fund, a reinsurance fund like the Republicans are talking about in their bill, you know, making the cost sharing reduction payments permanent, which are those subsidies that Donald Trump keeps threatening to cut off and blow up the whole insurance market. So Congress could just vote to allocate the money for those. And that way, uh, insurers wouldn't have to be panicking and, you know, bailing on the Obamacare markets right now. And then, you know, the Republicans could just get to cut the tax on insurers. That's like been one of their big targets, cutting the the tax on insurance plans and maybe the medical device tax. I think right. that's probably off the top of my head, almost 170 billion in corporate tax cuts over 10 years, which, you know, for a lot of Republicans, that's a prize. And if that were to end the healthcare wars, or at least temporarily bring a detente in the healthcare wars, that would be kind of amazing. And <laughs> I don't know if it's possible, but like I would be kind of shocked and odd and and a little bit happy, I think, if that was the final outcome of all this. It would be. I, I don't know if they would do something permanent. I, I figure maybe they just do something on like a two-year basis and then be like, oh, well, we'll revisit it after the next midterms. Because I think that Republicans already, even though they haven't passed anything, sort of already feel a sense of ownership over health care, and they do not want to go into the next midterms you know, with premiums going up 50% or whatever they're going to do in certain markets. So I think they do feel a little pressure to probably just yeah. throw some money out there. But I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, well, we're just going to do this in a couple of years and revisit it. You know, then some conservatives will still keep the flame alive of repealing Obamacare. So I don't know if it'd be a permanent resolution to the Obamacare wars, but it would show the way this is going to go for the you know, indefinite future. Rather than make any sort of tough bipartisan decisions or anything, you just throw money out there. Yeah, it's not the ideal way to run a government, just sort of stopgap solutions where you smother a fire with cash. But I mean, you know, what the hell, right? All right. So on that note, I think it's time for our traditional final segment. Is this shit really happening? Where Jim and I will each say whether or not we think Trump care will be signed into law and say what we are willing to wager on that prediction. Jim, are you ready today to uh, place a bet? Yes, I am going to bet that they will not pass this bill. And I'm a little confident I would wager a coffee table. Wow, a coffee table. How old is your coffee table, though? It's a couple years old. It's uh, from uh, not Ikea, but Target. It's very poorly constructed. (laughs) I constructed it. That's why I'm willing to bet. I should note that in saying this, making this confident assertion, they will almost certainly pass the bill now. So this is a, a first where Jim and I are both going to bet no. I do not think this bill is going to pass either. I don't see the path. I'm not as confident as Jim, though. So I'm going to bet, and this is going to take a little explanation, but I'm going to bet my Martin Shkreli novelty pillow. Back when people wow. actually cared about Martin Shkreli, you might remember him, the guy who jacked up the price of a drug the that AIDS patients. Yeah, the pharma bro jacked up the price of an AIDS drug or or a drug that AIDS patients often take to deal with uh, their symptoms like by 5,000%, uh, most hated man in America for like three days. Anyway, I was, I was writing about him and a friend of mine who runs or helps run a company called Collage.com decided as a joke to make me a pillow with a collage of his face where he was testifying before Congress and just sent it to me. And I've had this novelty pillow on my desk for a while at the Slate offices. So that is what I'm betting. My Martin Shkreli novelty pillow, a little uh, healthcare tchotchke for a healthcare podcast. I think that's it for this episode. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to email us with any questions, hit us up at trumpcaretracker at slate.com. Again, trumpcaretracker at slate.com. And please, please, please do leave us a review if you like the show. It helps other people find us. Our producer is June Thomas. Jim, it's been fun chatting. Yeah, good times. Good times.